John Wycliffe and the 1300s. We're actually doing that in an opposite order. We're going to do the 1300s and John Wycliffe. And uh, I want to, before I get very far at all, say thank you to Dale Hearn, who wrote a section of our paper for us today and saved me from having to write up John Wycliffe the preacher. And uh, that was that saved me uh, uh, some considerable time, and I am deeply appreciative to him. Uh, if there are any mistakes in that section, uh, it's because after he wrote it, I got to work on it. And uh, uh, I may have messed up some, but uh, uh, the good stuff is, is his. Um, the 1300s, uh, we're going to have a little history lesson for just a minute and make sure that we're all on tap of things. And I apologize to those who have um, Eastern heritage because we've ignored the church in the East now for several centuries, and we will get back to them because we've got a Russian break-off of the church that we haven't handled well, and we ha- haven't handled at all. And we've got several other things that are important from the Eastern church. Trust me, they just haven't merited a whole class at least in my brain yet, but we will get to a point where we pick back up and cover that. Um, uh, As for the church's development in India and the Far East, uh, I don't know anything about that much, so I haven't covered it either. Now, that was the honest part of the class. Um, The 1300s, really what we've been focusing on is Europe and and Western civilization at this point in time because the the part of the church that that we tend to embrace and and are a, a part of really has that as its roots and its heritage. Sandy will be putting out, I think, a newsletter soon that will tell you where we're going from here. But we are, I've got some really wonderful folks coming up. We've got Hus next week, who if you've ever been to Prague, Czechoslovakia, and the big square there is a big statue of Jan or John Hus, depending on how you say it. Um, we've got, uh, 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 who else do we have? We have Luther and Zwingli and Melanchthon. We've got... Uh, Menno Simmons, who started the Mennonites uh, right around the corner, um, and the Anabaptists. We've got uh, um, the, we're not far from the Church of England breakoff, which is in the 1500s, where the Anglican Church and what is now American Episcopalianism comes from. Um, so we've got a lot that we're going to be covering if you're interested in the next few weeks. But this morning, we're looking at the 1300s, a little bit of history. They were a turbulent time. There was a lot that happened in the 1300s. There was a a mini ice age in the early part of the 1300s that resulted in a lot less farming time. Uh, There was uh, crops were were hard to come by. Uh, Historically, the 1300s were a time in Europe of a great deal of unrest and problems. Uh, During the 1300s, the church and government were in a huge power struggle, especially Italy, France, and, and the, the church. There was a, a tremendous power struggle going on. That power struggle doesn't resolve in the 1300s. It continues. And we're seeing the cracks in the, the unity of what is the, the Roman Catholic Church really starting to, to fissure off. And those cracks are going to grow bigger and bigger until ultimately there, there are breaches that, that to, to date in history have not been pre- repaired. Um, the, the church, though, in the state, I'd really like to focus for a moment on the church, the, the Roman Catholic Church and, and the Pope and, and, and its structure with specifically the government of France. There is a king of France at this point in time, and the French uh, uh, country is, is in the boundaries of what we know France, and they truly are in a slugfest. It is rock'em, sock'em robots, okay? And in this corner, we have Pope Boniface the eighth. 
and he's from Rome. And we're going to, can you lift him up a little bit? I went to a lot of trouble. That is, by the way, the uh, uh, Roman flag, uh, the Vatican flag, because um, uh, we want this to really look like legitimate boxing. So um, Pope Boniface VIII is in this corner, and in this corner is King Philip IV of France. And it is a world heavyweight slugfest. See, King Philip IV of France, and I, and I really want to try and put this, I, what I'd love to do is, and what I try to do myself, is get into the mindset of what's really going on there. Let's get into the context, the historical context, get into the mindset, because most of these people do things that we look at and we say, that's just appalling. That's just absolutely appalling. Yet, they weren't really totally appalling people, all of them, some were. But not all of them were totally appalling people. They just had a different mindset. And so my hope is to try and convey some of the mindset to us so that we can better, more fully understand what they were doing. For example, King Philip IV. King Philip IV, his dad, uh, uh, the ruler before him, had left France in a horrible state. His dad had been a crusading king. He'd gone down to Egypt. He'd taken a French army. He'd borrowed a whole lot of money to do it. And he went down there and he got whipped. So he came back and he basically mortgaged his kingdom to get a bigger army and to go back and to get some justice. And so he goes back down and wants to conquer Cairo for God and France. Or France and God, depending on the order. And the problem is uh, he dies and his son inherits not only France and the throne, but he inherits a horrible debt problem. A horrible... And he did not have... What's the name of our debt relief guy? Uh, Ramsey, Dave Ramsey. He did not have Dave Ramsey as a counselor. So he's stuck trying to figure out how to do it. So what King says is King Philip says the following. I know... I'll start taxing the clergy. I'll tax the guys who work at church. That hasn't been being done for a while. Oh, it, it's done here and there and here and there. But, but I will tax them. That was also important because the king of France was contemplating going to war with England. And they would fight periodically all the time anyway. And so it was getting about time to fight again. He was already in debt. He needed to pay back. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to tax the clergy. I'll start taxing God's people, the bishops, the church. This did not go over well with the Pope. The Pope did not believe anybody had the right to tax God's people, the church. The Pope thought, if you're going to tax the church, then you're in essence taxing God. And France is supposed to be God's kingdom, and the French king is supposed to be under God, that's the equivalent in the Pope's mind of you and I saying, you know, I'm a little short on dough. I think I'm going to go find President Bush and tax him. Well, we don't get to tax him. He gets to write, or Congress at least, gets to tax us. And so the Pope's very upset about this. And the Pope basically says, well, you might be able to pass a law saying you're going to tax the clergy, but the clergy report to me. So I'm going to issue my own papal bull. That's not an insult. That's what it's called, okay? It's a bull. It's like we get bulletin from it. It's a declaration, okay? 
I'm going to issue a papal bull. Sorry, Dale keeps telling me, why do you say papal? It's papal. Because I'm from Lubbock. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to issue a papal bull that says the following. Clergy are not allowed to pay taxes without my okay. Now, if the clergy pay taxes without my okay, they're going to be excommunicated from the church. And that means they go to hell. And that also means they can no longer administer the sacraments. And that means all of the good people of France who go to church to get the sacraments can't get them, and they're going to hell too. So look what you've done, dear king. You've just sent everyone to hell. Well, king says, oh yeah? Well, have I got a deal for you? You may be able to tell the clergy they can't pay taxes without your permission. But I am the ruler of my kingdom. And I've declared a new law. And here's my new law. No money, no gold, nothing of value is allowed to leave the border of France. In other words, Mr. Pope, your church now can get no money and tithes or anything from our country. So whether I tax them or not, the money's not going back to Rome and it's not going to you. And you have just deprived the church of its biggest hunk of money that it gets. So there. At which point the Pope says, okay, I'm modifying my bull a little bit. The clergy can't pay taxes without my okay most of the time. However, when there's a national emergency, then it's okay and the king can tax. So the king got to tax. The clergy were not excommunicated, and that which was not taxed, the proper percentage continued to flow to Rome. Sound like everything's okay? It wasn't. It was just round one of the boxing match. But the match continued. Because you see, the king decided he didn't like one of the bishops, one of the churchmen. So he had him arrested for treason. Now, at this point in history, the church and the churchmen were not subject to arrest by the state. They reported to the church and the church government, and if they do something wrong, it's the church government and the church courts that take care of them. So the king had no right to arrest the bishop for treason. Furthermore, the bishop doesn't have loyalty to the king anyway. He has it to the pope, who is God's representative on earth. So there's no such thing as treason to the king of, of, of France. So when the king says, I'm arresting a bishop, the pope pronounces the following. The king has no authority over the church. He cannot arrest anybody that is part of the church like this. So the king says, well, all right. I personally believe, and he gets a committee called together, that the pope is a crook. So the pope's not the church anyway. This pope is crooked. And here are the charges that the king of England brought against the pope. Heresy. That's pretty serious. Heresy. I mean, you get burned at the stake for that. Blasphemy. That's pretty serious. Murder. That's pretty serious. See, the, uh, uh, the, the allegation was that the pope had murdered the previous pope. 
he hadn't really murdered him. What he'd done is he had talked the Pope into resigning. Uh, the way he did that was the Pope had thought that the Pope was perfect. So uh, the Pope that we now have at this stage of the game had convinced the prior Pope that he wasn't perfect. And once the prior Pope was convinced he wasn't perfect, he said, gee, I must resign. At which point the new Pope said, okay, you're resigned. Get the Cardinals together. Boom, I'm elected new Pope. And he had the old Pope locked up in the dungeon just in case the old Pope should change his mind and realize he'd been hoodwinked. So this is the way the King of France saw it. So the King of France says the Pope's a crook. He's guilty of heresy. He's guilty of blasphemy. He's guilty of murder. He's guilty of sodomy. He's guilty of of sorcery. And just in case we haven't covered the waterfront, he's guilty of failing to fast on the proper fast days. You don't want to leave that out. You'd hate to like walk him on murder and then have left out the lesser charge of failing to fast on a Friday. So this is the charge brought against the Pope. The Pope does not like this. So the Pope says, okay, enough's enough. I'm excommunicating the King of France. He's now going to hell. See the struggle? Okay. So what does the King of France do? He gets a band of mercenary rogues and they go kidnap the Pope. He sends them. The Pope's at his little summer retreat and uh, they, they kidnap him. Now the townspeople rise up and won't let the kidnappers flee with the Pope. So they've got the Pope and they're all locked up for three days before the, they, they finally get talked down. But meanwhile, the Pope's in such, he's 86 years old. He's in such bad shape that he loses it here. And within a matter of a couple of weeks, he dies. He never really recovers. Um, was he beat up some? We don't know all the details, but we know, and history is pretty clear, that as a result of this event, the Pope dies. So Pope Boniface dies at age 86, and the, the cardinals get together to elect a new Pope. They elect a new fella. His name's Pope Benedict XI. Now, all these Popes are Italian. And that's one reason they don't really give much consideration to the king of France. Because the king of France and the Italian states are always arguing about their border anyway. So the king of France uh, uh, has a few French cardinals, but not enough to win. So another Italian gets elected pope, Pope Benedict XI. I say he lasts eight months. It seems he was poisoned. Most likely by the same rogue that had kidnapped the other pope. Now you start to see a pattern here. Italian cardinal becomes Catholic pope. King of France does not like pope. Pope dies. New Italian cardinal becomes new pope. King of France does not like Italian pope. And he dies. All the cardinals get together and no Italian cardinals really lobbying hard for the position of pope. Lo and behold, a Frenchman is elected Pope. Pope Clement V, a childhood friend of the King of France, who says, gee, it's nice to be Pope. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to move the Pope home, the Vatican, if you will, from Rome to Avignon, France. 
And the papacy moves, the Catholic Church, the seat of the Catholic Church. Now, remember, one of the titles of the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. So the Bishop of Rome decides he's going to rule Rome from church perspective out of Avignon, France. And the king of France is elated because he thinks here this is the solve of our problem. And the church moves from Rome to Avignon, which historians now call the Babylonian captivity of the papacy. And for the next 70 years or so... Now, these weren't bad digs. This is uh, the home of the Catholic Church and the Pope there in Avignon. And um, that's where it is. Now, so this is a turbulent time in the 1300s. You see the struggle between church and state? The turbulence doesn't end there. There was a great deal of corruption within the church itself. It's very interesting. I sent this lesson to... to uh, John Michael Talbot, and I said, you know, I, I, I want to make sure I port- I'm, I've got some harsh things to say about the Catholic Church. I want to make sure that I say them in, in a fair way that, that also does not uh, uh, denigrate a, a perspective of this history. You know, I, I don't want to stand up here and give you all my interpretation of events without telling you this is my interpretation, but here are some others, because otherwise I'm not fair, right? So he, he emailed me back and he said, well, on my line in the paper where I said there was a good bit of corruption in the church at this time, he put in parentheses, you got that right, then dot, 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 just like at any other time, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) I thought, you know, that's uh, pretty accurate. You can't turn on some religious television today without seeing a good bit of corruption in the church. Uh, But there was a lot of corruption in the church. The corruption in the church was from everything being for sale. And the church has really turned itself at this point into a huge money entity. And uh, I'm sure from the church's perspective, uh, this is is probably not as corrupt as it seems to me, but it seems to me just utterly corrupt. Um, um, uh, Let me tell you why. Let's look at it. Everything was for sale. Church offices. You want to be a local priest? Better yet, you want to be a pardoner? Remember Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, some of you? The pardoner? He was really almost no redeeming character in the whole story. Chaucer, by the way, lives in the 1300s. Okay? He's a contemporary of John Wycliffe. The pardoner is the guy who gets to go around under court order or under church order and pardon people for sins. You got sins, you're going to hell. You need to be forgiven. Come to me, I'm a partner. You pay a fine, I'll assess the fine, and uh, your sin's forgiven. I mean, that's you, these church offices you can buy. You could give enough money, you could appoint your son to be a preacher and get the, the local uh, vicar for your son. You know, the, 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 the David Flemings of the world... Oh, they could get the job by merit, which our David did by God's hand, but they could also buy it and then uh, take their money out of the till. It's, it was very corrupt. Um, relics and hats. Bishops would sell their hats. Um, hey, I've got my little bishop's mitre or whatever it is. I've been wearing it for a year and good things have happened to me. It's probably because God looks down from heaven and sees the hat. You might want to wear it. Maybe he won't look for any details to think you're a bishop. 
By the way, chess was a game back at this day. The chess men, the bishops that come to a point, that's the bishop's hat, bishop's mitre. Anyway, um, they would sell all sorts of things. I mean, one king's this really big collector. He's convinced he's got not only part of Jesus' cross, but he's got you know just innumerable things that, that are supposedly real relics. And if you touch them right, then you like get healed and all sorts of things can happen and people would pay to come see him. And the church was selling these things. Um, and I mean, it, it's, it's almost like when, when my, my brother-in-law, Kevin Roberts, goes to New York, his kids, our kids will frequently, because we travel a good bit, our kids will say, would you bring me something? For example, I'm in trial in New Jersey. So Sarah, my second grader, said, Daddy, where are you going to be? I said, I'm going to be in New Jersey. She said, would you bring me one? I said, what? She said, bring me a New Jersey. That's the way, you know, kids don't think, I guess, of states in the second grade as much as we do. So I had to go find a New Jersey in New Jersey to bring her back. But when Kevin goes to New York, his kids want him to go to the NBA store because they want to wear NBA gear, real authorized NBA gear. They can tell the difference between the fake Rockets jersey and the NBA authorized Rockets jersey. So in a sense, we like to wear official regalia today. Our kids do. Well, that's the way it was then. Look at this. I have a, this is an official hat worn by the local bishop. And, uh, uh, you know, they had their regalia that they would sell. They would sell penance or forgiveness of sins. You go confess your sins. You want forgiveness. Well, there are several things you can do. One of the things you can do is, like, go kill ten Muslims. Or, if you think it easier, just give me a couple hundred bucks. God will forgive you. And the, the, there's no truth to the story, but it's a great illustration of uh, the fellow who went to the priest and said, I need forgiveness for the sin I'm about to commit. And the priest said, what is it? He said, I can't tell you. It's too horrible. I just need forgiveness. Just find me whatever it's going to be. I'll pay you, and, and that's it. Priest said, well, I need to know what it is so I know how much to find you. Father, just imagine it's the worst sin a man could commit. Find me whatever it takes to get absolute total forgiveness for the sin I'm going to commit tonight. Priest says, okay, and the priest levies a pretty heavy fine. And then that night the fellow went and stole all of the money from the church, including the money he'd paid to get forgiven for stealing from the church, <laughs> plus everything else everyone else had paid. It was a real money-making deal for him. He thought he'd outfoxed him. Now, there's no truth to that that I know of, but it's a good story, and it illustrates the abuse that can be involved when you get so caught up and you lose the simplicity of the gospel of God. This is not the most appalling to me. The most appalling to me is the Eucharist itself, the Lord's Supper. We have a communion room right outside there. They don't charge you to go in there and take communion. Understand in Catholic doctrine at the time, and still today, when the priest pronounces the, the word of God over the bread and, and the wine or the juice, Catholic doctrine taught and still teaches that God, through the miracle of those words being pronounced, actually transforms the essence, not the physical elements, but the essence 
of the bread and the wine into the body and the blood of Jesus. And by partaking in the body and blood of Jesus, you partake in God's eternal life. It's a sacrament. It's something God does. And it's one of the things that ensures you your place in heaven. Okay? Now, there were priests and others who were authorized to dispense the sacraments who could pray these prayers, but they wouldn't give them to you unless you put money in the tithe bucket. This just really disturbs me. I mean, we hold Judas Iscariot in horrid regard because he sold the body and blood of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And yet, in the name of Christianity, we've got priests who are selling it for a few pennies. You see that? This is So, this, uh, this, by the way, when you start selling church offices, and when you start tying God's forgiveness to money, and when you get so caught up in rules and legalism, and you lose focus of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you wind up with a real unfit clergy. The churchmen, I, we've got reports of churchmen who aren't learned enough to even read and pronounce the word of God to transform the Eucharist, bread and wine, into the body and blood of Jesus. We've got current reports, Petrarch and others, who wrote and said, yeah, these priests, they get there and they try to read the Mass to do the miraculous transubstantiation thing going, and they just have to look at some of those words and say things like, well, whatever this says. Uh, you know, whatever this says, because it's all in Latin, and Latin's no longer the common language. You've got people who are being buying into these offices. The church is terribly unfit. And what does that do to the people who go to church? One of the things I love about this right now at our church, I love hearing Dave Fleming preach. I think he's a wonderful speaker. I think he's got a godly message. I think he combines a little bit of humor, but it's not an entertainment hour. I think it's still biblical. I think it's just, it, 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 I, I love it. Okay? It makes me feel good. It makes me want to bring people. Now, how about the opposite? How would you feel coming to a church where the guy up front is a charlatan and on the take, where the baskets are going out because he's going to be putting the money in his pocket where he doesn't want you to have any of the blessings of the church unless you're willing to pay him for them. The communion room, you go in there, you got to put a five in before you're entitled to, to, to take communion. Ten if you want to sit down while you do it. Do you want to bring your friends there? Do you have great, oh, I love my faith? I had an email this morning. The people up in, in New Jersey are still just... The, the, the lawyers that don't work at our firm, the lawyers who work at our firm know me enough, but the others are just absolutely bizarrely think I'm really weird that I'll come home in the weekends and see my family. That to them is really bizarre. I mean, I, I live, I, the only reason I do that job is so I can do these things. It doesn't occur to them. And, and so when I this morning I get an email from one of them says we need a conference a, a one hour phone conference uh, everybody together uh, we'll do it in thirty minutes and I emailed back and said I can't I got to go to church. He emailed back and said what? I said C H U R C H. <laughs> he emailed back and said oh in other words family time. 
I thought about it and I thought, uh-huh, this is my family. This is family time. I love, I, I invite anybody that we can to church. I love people to hear. But boy, you get, you get somebody, you get some loser church hour and, and everybody's cynical. And the world is cynical because that's not God. And that's the situation. Um, I don't have time to tell you about the Knights Templar. They got destroyed. Really fascinating. Uh, I mean, really fascinating. I will tell you this. The Knights Templar, they were were an organized group of fighting monks, in essence, who uh, had organized in the uh, 1118. There were nine of them. But at this point in time, they've become like international bankers, international monks. They've, They've got, they are... They are, are really feared warriors. They've got castles everywhere. Uh, they, they've got uh, what some people think are the, the starts of Freemasonry. I don't know that that's true because I don't know all of that kind of stuff, and you can read it on both sides. But, but the Knights Templar are basically torn apart in concert by the King of England and his new buddy, Pope Friend. And so they destroy the Knights Templar and take all of their possessions and uh, give them to the Knights Hospitalier, which are now called the Knights of Malta, who then cut back a percentage to the King of France. It's all real nice. Um, but as the, the, the Grand Master, the head of the Knights Templar, is being burned at the stake, his last words are a call out for the Pope and the King of England to join him at the judgment seat of God within a year so that they can discuss this. And he then pronounces a curse to their 13th generation. Well, within a few months, both the king of France and the pope die, which everybody thought, wow, you know, this, this cursed thing worked, and, and everybody got real concerned. But uh, uh, the Knights Templar were destroyed, and, and all of society was in a tough situation. These were a turbulent time, and if that's not enough, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this, In 1347, in October, 1347, the Black Death hits Europe. Most doctors think it's the bubonic plague. There's now a set of doctors that think it's more of an Ebola virus or more of some other options. But regardless of what it was, the Black Death is really bad. Painful swellings in your body. A high fever, 101 to 105. Headaches. Vomiting spitting up blood, and you die in less than seven days, some people in a day's time from when they get it. And it's virulent, and it's spread, and it's spread if it's the plague that they think it was. It's spread two ways. It's in the bloodstream of fleas and rats, and the fleas live on the rats, and then the fleas bite you, and you get it. And anywhere there are fleas and rats, and they they both spread like crazy, that spreads it. The other way through the air. You're with someone who's got it, they cough, you get it. Let me show you how it spread. I don't know how well you can see these colors, but it came, from, for Europe's purposes, it seems to have started over in China. It came from a ship in Kafka. There was a ship in Kafka, or Kaffa um, uh, that, that left, and, and, and before it left, there was a war between some Mongols and the people inside the city. And the Mongols had some people dying from this. So what they would do is put the dead people on catapults and catapult them into the city to spread the, the contagion. 
So the people in the city start dying. So a bunch of soldiers get out of there, sailors, and they get to their ship. And somehow they manage to break away, but evidently brought some rats with them, which are pretty common on ships. And that ship sails, and it puts into port down here in Sicily, in Messina. And when it puts into port in Messina, in, 19, in 1347, Sicily and the boot of Italy and the Corsica and these islands over here and just up in Marseille, France, they, the plague goes, and it just grows, and it grows. 1348, it grows throughout France all the way up to the border of Paris, throughout Italy, throughout Greece, and in into Spain. And then the next year, 1349, it finishes Spain, it hits England, and it spreads up through northern Europe. In 1350, it hits another section and goes even further. And i got to tell you, surveys differ, scholars differ, but somewhere between one-third and two-thirds of the population of Europe is wiped out in three years. Dead. Think about that. One-third to two-thirds dead. In England, the population goes from seven million to two million. Seventy percent of the British population dead. Seventy percent of the people in England dead within a matter of months when it hits England. I put 30 units up there. They covered the country. And they die one right after the other. That's devastation. And this crisis brought out the best and the worst in the world and the church. Oh, certain people in the world, gee, we're all going to die. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's do whatever we want. Spend what we have. Have fun while we're alive. Other people in the church, same thing. The church, it's interesting. A lot of priests, they didn't buy those jobs to go in and give last rites to people who might cough and kill them. They didn't buy that job to do that. So you have a lot of priests that won't take confession. You have a lot of priests that won't go give last rites. And the Pope has to issue another bull that basically says, if you don't have an available priest to take confession before you die, lay people are allowed to do it now. But in addition to the worst, you go to the hospital in Paris and you read about these nuns who are in there ministering for the sick people. And the nuns are dropping dead just as fast as the sick people. And so the nuns set it up where they'll go in in, in phases. This nun, these nuns will do it for three days, and then these nuns will do the next three days because the nuns themselves are dying at that point. And almost all of the nuns wind up dying, but they all die in service. It brought out the best and it brought out the worst. And the people are sitting there saying, what is happening? Why is this happening? Is this the wrath of God? Is this like Noah in the flood? They don't understand germs. They can't call Barhorst and say, hey, I'm sick. What do you have for me? They don't understand that kind of stuff. All they know is literally half of everybody they know are dying. And you read reports, the doors of the houses are open and nobody's going in to rob because people inside are dead. What does it do to the economy? What does it do to cost? What would happen if half of Houston died this month? What kind of jobs, what kind of, you know, it's, it's a mess. Now, some people said, you know, I think this is the Jews. I think the Jews are doing this. They put something in the drinking water. And so there's a wholesale wiping out of Jews. 
in the name of Christ. In the name of Christ. The Pope tries to stop it. He issues a bull that says, hey, don't you realize Jews are dropping dead from the plague just as much as us? But most people didn't like Jews anyway because Christians weren't allowed to loan money out at interest, and Jews were. So everybody owed Jews money. And so everybody said, you know, these guys have been bilking us anyway. This is just typical. We're allowed to go to the Holy Land and kill Muslims for Christ. Why can't we kill the, the non-believers here? And there's wholesale wiping out of Jews. Then there are these groups that come up, like the self-flagellators. And this would be groups of two and 300 people who get with a master. And what they do is they go from town to town and say, the reason this has happened is because of the sins of the people. If y'all uh, uh, will pay us, we will take on the responsibility, and they start beating themselves with whips that have iron stakes and bleeding. And then they'll take little rags and soak them in blood and sell the blood and soaked rags to people who are desperate for anything. Um, you, in the midst of all of this comes John Wycliffe. Now, John Wycliffe, we don't know much about him before he gets to Oxford to study, but he's born in England. He goes to Oxford, he studies, and he becomes master, which is kind of like head dean or whatever, of one of the colleges there in Oxford. Um, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's spelled like it should be pronounced Balliol. Uh, uh, Will, are you in here? Is it Balliol? Okay. I paid good money for him to learn that. Um, actually, I think Becky wrote the check. Um, He's master of Balliol College. And it's interesting, if you go to the Balliol College website, they've got a really good picture. In fact, it's that picture of him on their website, which is real interesting because they kicked him out. But now they claim it. Um, he was master of Balliol College. He becomes very anti-papal. He, and, and, and he writes uh, books and gives sermons and preaches. And, and basically, his favorite thing to call the Pope is the Antichrist. And he writes this big, long dissertation explaining why the Pope is the Antichrist. Um, now, there, it's not that he's against popes in general. In fact, there comes a time where there's a new pope when the schism that had sent the, the papistry over to Avignon is actually returned, and the pope returns to Rome, much to the chagrin of the French. And, and, and so there's one pope that, that Wycliffe loves, and Wycliffe says, you know, this is our pope. But his rule for the pope was, it's fine for you to be the pastor of the church as long as you subject yourself to the same Bible requirements everybody else does. But the Bible is the authority over you, not with you. See, Catholic Church perception was you've got the Pope and the tradition of the church that goes side by side with the Bible. And the Catholics would say, if you don't have the tradition, you don't have a Bible because it's the tradition that established what the Bible would be. So the two go hand in hand. Wycliffe says no, it was God's hand, the Holy Spirit's hand, through the church that established the Bible. But the Bible is the word of God. And so the church is under the Bible. And as long as the Pope will live under the Bible, that's fine for there to be a bishop of the church. But he needs to be under the Bible. Uh, Pope Gregory, he said, was a horrible devil and a lasting heretic. He was not under the Bible. He says, we obey popes only insofar as they follow Christ and act in accordance with Scripture. Then we will. He was strongly pro-Bible. Uh, it was Archbishop Steve Langton 
who in 1227, from there to 1248, divided the Bible into chapters. So that's been done. It hasn't been divided into verses yet. That gets done in 1551. But it's been divided into chapters. Robert Estienne does it in 1551 into verses. So divided into chapters, and he's big on the Bible. Wycliffe says the Bible is the mirror of eternal truth. He says it's God's word, pure and simple. And it must be taught, and it alone determines the articles of faith. If you want to know whether something's right, you don't look to what the Pope says, you look to what the Bible says, and you read the Bible. Now the problem is the Bible's in Latin, and most people can't read Latin, so what does he do? Translates it into English for the first time. Actually, it may not have been him, it may have been his students in conjunction with him, but it's the Wycliffe Bible translation put into English. I brought this book because it's got some pictures of some of the pages. I don't have the equipment because it's in New Jersey, but I'll try and show it when we get to the King James. We're going to have a day on the King James, God willing. He says, the New Testament is of full authority. It's open to the understanding of simple men as to the points be most needful to salvation. You don't have to be a brain trust to figure out how to be saved. You don't have to be a brain trust to figure out faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a brain trust to teach someone how to be saved. Wycliffe believed that everyone had the right and the obligation to examine the scriptures. He was a preacher who would preach in common language. This is at a time when sermons are in Latin. And most people don't pay attention to sermons anyway. They sit there and laugh and talk. They just go to church because they have to take the communion and pay the tithe so they can be forgiven back then. He's up there and he's teaching and he's telling his students to teach and he's telling the lowlards who followed after him to speak in plain English and tell people about God and his word and Jesus Christ at a time when nobody else was doing it. He said the end of preaching is to profit the souls of people. Let us help people draw near to God. Isn't this a refreshing voice in the midst of that corruption? Oh, he went after the corruption big time. Oh, he went after the corruption. He went after the Eucharist. He said the Eucharist is not the actual... He said, how on earth... He's convinced some of the priests, he says, look, let's all be honest. A bunch of these priests are going to hell. They're not any more saved than Job's turkey. Now, if, if these priests are going to hell... How do you think they have the power by what they say to convert common bread and juice into the body and blood of Jesus Christ? No priest going to hell is able to do that. And you combine that with his philosophy, which is very hard for me to understand because he was a philosophy teacher. He was actually a who just taught Bible on the side. But you combine and philosophically he says there's no way this bread and wine become body and blood anyway. So he writes this long dissertation. Now, bless his heart, he doesn't get in trouble for calling the Pope the Antichrist and preaching and writing on him. He doesn't get in trouble for going after all of the monks that are in his area for being money grubbers. He doesn't get in trouble for translating the Bible into English. He gets in trouble for denying the transubstantiation that the body and blood actually and uh, gets kicked out. Uh, and he dies after a couple of strokes. Uh, kind of in obscurity, but his influence is huge. And that's what we'll be seeing in the next few weeks, maybe months. Points for home.
life has strange turns. It really does. Oh, there are big national events. The King of England is fighting with the Pope. Oh, there are big national events. Population's getting wiped out. There are small events. Corrupt people in the church. Corrupt uh, 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 or death and destruction at your doorstep. And the assurance that I have as I look at all of this, which could have been the end of the world in a sense, certainly the end of civilization, is that God is in control. And I was reminded of Psalm 11. And, and in Psalm 11, the psalmist asked this question, when the foundations are being destroyed, when everything that we stand on, when everything we believe in, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the answer the psalmist gives isn't, well, number one, number two, number three. His answer is, just take a deep breath and realize the following. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. And he's not blind to what's going on. He's in control. His eyes examine the sons of men. I don't know what you're going through in your life. I'm in New Jersey. My family's here. And I'm trying to juggle too many balls at one time. But God is on his holy throne. And his eyes are watching and it's going to be all right. Neither trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, bubonic plague, bad clergy, bad pope, bad king, bad theology, nothing will separate me from God's love for me. And I know in everything he's going to work out for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Next, intelligible preaching is important. I didn't do it. Hey, Paul said the same thing. He said, I can speak in tongues, but I gotta tell you, I'd rather say five words someone can understand than a thousand that's their gibberish. Or how about the Romans 10 passage where he says, How can they believe on the one they haven't believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they haven't heard? How can they hear without someone telling them? Let's just tell people about Jesus. I'll tell those guys today when I get up to New Jersey. I'll commit to you now. I will tell them about our church service today and how this pastor really encouraged me in this trial and how my class and my family encouraged me. And I want you as part of that commitment to agree if God opens the door for you to share something about today to someone, for you to do it. doesn't have to be big. doesn't have to be anything too monumental. But, you know, it's not hard to explain to someone should the opportunity be there that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you believe with your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And not just saved from your sin, but saved from this whole world. Saved from worrying about what's going to happen. Because that's where we are. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you love us, that your hand is on us, and that in the midst of all the craziness and turbulence and storms of of mankind and the world and all of the big national and international problems and all the huge problems at home and all the huge problems at work and all the huge problems in our brains and in our hearts that you sit on your heavenly throne and you are in control and you love us and nothing there is can ever separate us from that love. And I pray your Holy Spirit will give us rest in that and bring us back together next week. In Jesus' name, amen.